So, next week we leave planet Earth. Because next week we start chapter 4. Come up here, Jesus says. Come up here. It's a rapture, I believe. But anyway, this week is the last week of the church age and we're finishing off the church of Laodicea. So I'll just pray and then we'll get going. Lord, I thank you for your great love for us. I thank you for the mercy you've shown through these letters to the seven churches, how you rebuke in you chasten for the purpose of repentance and to bring us back into fellowship with yourself. And thank you for your fatherly touch and your fatherly advice, the way you just are so gentle with us, but yet so firm at the same time. Help us to respond to your correction and to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a really quick revision. The outline of the book, it's Revelation one nineteen. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So part one is chapter one, Jesus reveals himself to John. Part two and the things which are is what we're doing now. It's the Revelation chapter two and three, the letters to the seven churches. And part three and the things which will take place after this. And that's going to cover in chapters four and five, the rapture and the church in heaven and before the throne of God. Chapters 6 through 18 is a seven-year tribulation period. Chapter 19 is the second coming of Christ. Chapter 20 is a thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ on earth, finishing with the great white throne judgment. And then chapter 21 and 22 is the new heavens and the new earth leading into eternity. So the seven churches, the last time we'll be going through this as a revision, You have the church of Ephesus, the loveless church. You have the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. Then the church of Pergamos, the compromising church. Then the church of Thyatira, the corrupt church. Then the church of Sardis, the dead church. Then the church of Philadelphia, the faithful or missionary church. And finally, Laodicea, the lukewarm church, crowded but Christless. And that's the church age that we're in now, the predominant Church, the predominant style of church or people in the church today is the Laodicean people. So, last week we started going through the church of Laodicea. This week we'll, we'll continue and we'll finish it, God willing. And Laodicea is the lukewarm church, and Jesus had nothing good to say about this church. So, why? Does Jesus have nothing good to say about the last day's church that we are now in? Well, it's as we've started to look already, the church is generally full of compromise. The Laodicean church is generally full of compromise, apathy, and the pursuit of pleasure. And think about, as it's just something to think about, think about why the majority of people go to church these days. Is it because they are committed to that particular body of Christ? Because God called them there? Or are they there because that church best suits their preferences and or meets their needs? In other words, many simply go to a particular church because it suits them the best and makes them feel good. Also, the modern church is generally characterized by self-reliance and a focus on the external. Is it exciting? Does it make you feel good? What type of music do they sing? How many people go there? How nice is the building? 
Is there a youth group? Are there people my own age with similar interests? That's usually the criteria people have for going to church. Now, in contrast, biblically speaking, the two criteria that we should be looking for are brotherly love, people sharing Christ's love, so the fruit of the Spirit is flowing or working in that church, and there's true unity, and there's good Bible teaching, good expository Bible teaching, explaining the Word and equipping people. And the fruit of those two things, the love and the good teaching, the truth and love working together, is that people will grow and mature in their relationship with God. Now, the Laodicea in church. Last week I gave a bit of a snapshot of what it was like on the ground. Here's another snapshot, but this is different. This is a survey. It's a George Barner survey. And he's exploring the perceptions of sin and salvation. And now it's for the U.S., they surveyed 2,000 people in the US, but I'm pretty sure that the percentages of people and their main conclusions would be the same for Australian and Western Europe. So, what's the title of this survey? What's the conclusion? US Christians increasingly departing from core truths of Christian worldview, survey finds. US Christians increasingly departing from core truths of Christian worldview, survey finds. Now, as we go through, remember that this is 2,000 people, so it's quite accurate, and there's plus or minus 2% accuracy. Now, it starts with the conclusion. A new survey shows that the majority of Americans no longer believe that Jesus is the path to salvation, and instead believe that being a good person is sufficient. That's pretty shocking, eh? So. The first question relates to ecumenicalism, the belief that it doesn't matter what your faith is, just as long as you have faith in something, whatever that may be. And what do they say? Nearly two-thirds of Americans believe that having some kind of faith is more important than the particular faith in which someone aligns themselves to. So out of those two-thirds, 68% who embrace that notion identify as Christians. 56% of those are self-described evangelicals, those who say that they have good Bible teaching and stuff like that. And 62% who identify as Pentecostals, 67% of mainline Protestants, and 77% of Catholics also embrace that idea, the findings show. So when we get into Revelation, there's going to be a one-world religion. It's, time is ripe for that now because people already got the ecumenical spirit going and now the second question relates to salvation is it by works or by grace and the conclusion slightly over half of Christian respondents said that they believe someone can attain salvation by being or doing good a figure that includes 46% of Pentecostals 44% of mainline Protestants 41% of Evangelicals and 70% of Catholics. So, it's not good. These are your main churches and roughly 50% average of people are of the understanding that you can get to heaven by being good. Remember what we read last week? Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. That's verse 17 in Revelation 3. 
So this is that spirit of independence from God, of self-reliance. I can do it my own way. Who said that? I want to do things my way? Is that Frank Sinatra? Yeah. All right. So let's have a look at Revelation 3, 14 to 22. And we'll see if what we read here matches the description of the world that we've just had a, a quick snapshot of. So Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. So it says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesalve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. As we learnt last week, that word zealous is hot. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To he who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, we covered verses 14 to 19 last week, so you'll have to listen to last week's message to know what it means to be lukewarm and why God would want to vomit the lukewarm person or church out of his mouth, and also what it means to be hot or cold. We also learned that it's possible that churches and people individually can think of themselves as being rich, wealthy, and in need of nothing, like their spiritual state is quite good, yet their actual condition, the reality of their situation as revealed by Jesus is that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. So the question is how did they become so deceived? So we're going to continue with verse 20 this week. It's a very important and famous verse. You probably all know it. It's Revelation 3.20. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So someone has called this the great invitation. Jesus gives his lukewarm church the great invitation. He knocked at their door, asking permission to come and dine with them. Now, what's he asking for? He's asking for fellowship. He wants warm, intimate, loving fellowship with them. So how do we experience intimacy with Jesus? It's simple. We just respond to his knock on our hearts, and we'll look at what that is in a minute. So start at verse 20, the first word there, behold. Now it means to look, to see, to pay attention to something. So physically look with your eyes. God uses this word numerous times in the book of Revelation when he's about to reveal something important. So he's revealing something important to this church. What is he revealing to this church? Well, I stand at the door and knock. 
if anyone hears my voice and opens a door, what's this telling us? Well, where's Jesus? He's on the outside. He's knocking to get in. So if the church at Philadelphia was the church of the open door, then Laodicea could be called the church of the excluded Jesus. And a quote from David Guzik, This statement of Jesus expressed a profound mystery. Why did Jesus stand outside the door? Why did he knock? Why did he wait until someone opens the door? He had every right to break down the door or enter some other way on his own accord, but he didn't. The sovereign, omnipotent Jesus lowered himself to work out his eternal plan by wooing the cooperation of the human heart. By wooing the cooperation of the human heart. So, an important question to ask is, how does Christ knock on the door of our hearts? Well, there's three ways it happens. It's through his word, it's through the church, and it's through the Holy Spirit. Or any combination of those three things. He first uses the law to show us how sinful we are, and then he shows us mercy and grace at the cross to reveal to us how much he loves us and how we can be declared innocent in God's courtroom. We are justified. Justified never sinned. Then he lovingly disciplines, corrects, and exhorts us, encouraging us to continue to repent and turn to him on an ongoing basis. And that's what the Christian life is. It's a series of we fall, we get up, we fall, we get up. We continue to repent as he disciplines us as a loving father. So the next question now becomes, how does a person open the door? It's a quote from Henry Morris. The occupant must open the door. That is, he must repent of his pride and self-sufficiency, his human wisdom, and his cowardly neutrality. And I've added here, his lack of commitment to either the world or to Jesus. So they're not committed to the world, not committed to Jesus. They're just neutral. Mm -hmm. Lukewarm. So, I will come in to him. And this is a glorious promise. If we open the door, he will come in. You know how you get those kids sometimes and they knock on the door and run away? <laughs> no, Christ won't do that, all right? He's promised to come in and then to dine with the believer. Now, if you read the Gospels, after the resurrection, what was one common factor that we see Jesus doing each time? What was that? He was eating, yeah. And it wasn't because he was hungry. <laughs> he had a glorified body. So think about the time when the disciples are out in the boat and Jesus is on the beach and he's cooking them breakfast. And they come in and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? This is Jesus knocking on Peter's door. Yes, just an example of Jesus knocking on Peter's door. Seeking fellowship. He was bringing him back into fellowship, relationship, intimacy, and a love relationship. He wanted Peter to walk with him. So Jesus is saying the same to us today. Do you love me enough to spend time with me, to obey me, to follow me, to walk with me? That's him knocking. Knock, knock, knock. Will you spend time with me? Now, when it says dine with him, 
he spoke of a specific meal known as the, I can't pronounce this, but it's like the Deipnon, D-E-I-P-N-O-N, and it's the main meal of the day. It's a leisurely affair. It's, it's when you sit down and you kick back and you eat and you talk and you have fellowship. And you only do that with friends. In Middle Eastern culture, you only do that with friends. If you invite someone into your house for this meal, they're a friend. And you've got this unity, this fellowship. And this is where Jesus wants us, in this place of fellowship with him. And so as we go through the, or as we went through the Laodicean church last week, we need to see all his rebuke everything he said to the Laodicean church up to this point in the light of this loving desire for fellowship. Someone said, Rebuke and chastisement are no signs of rejection from Christ, but of his abiding and pleading love, even to the lukewarm and careless. Now, also in this verse, it says, If anyone. Now, Jesus gives the call to individuals. He didn't say, If any." Church opened the door, he said, if anyone. Okay? Spurgeon said about this, We must not talk about setting the church right. We must pray for grace for each one, for himself, each individual person. For the text does not say, if the church will open the door, but if any man hear my voice and open the door. So it must be done by individuals. The church will only get right by each man getting right, by each person. Getting right with God. God's relationship with each of us is an individual relationship. And as we grow to become more like Christ, then our fellowship with each other naturally increases or becomes more beautiful. Now, who was the promise made to? It's to anyone who hears my voice. It's to all people. So the gift of salvation is open to all people, everyone. So I look at it this way. God, in his sovereignty, made a sovereign choice to give free will to mankind when it comes to moral choices, our relationship with God, and our eternal destiny. He hasn't given up his sovereignty, but he's given us this free choice. Now, to clarify, on the other hand, mankind does not have free will as far as world events go and getting our own way, because God has already told us what the future holds, and God doesn't change. Governments and leaders are all basically God's pick. God puts them in place. Romans 13. They do God's will to achieve God's purposes in this world. God is in control of world events. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, you can really see it clearly where God choosing nations and leaders of nations to work, sometimes to punish his people Israel. And so God used the Gentile nations and leaders for his purposes concerning the nation of Israel. Well, the same is true today. God is using the nations, the Gentile nations, to accomplish his purposes today, both concerning the church and end times, and, of course, with Israel. So, everything is working according to his plan for his glory, and we will see this better when we get to the other side. Now it's kind of murky, we wonder what's going on, that's terrible. But when we get there, it's fine. We'll see that God is fair and his judgments are just. says in Revelation. But when it comes to our free will concerning our eternal destiny, the human race has always had free will. Now, here's another example. 
John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So whoever believes. Again, the door to heaven is open wide to anyone who is willing to confess and forsake their sin who are willing to come into the light and leave their wicked works behind. Now, where did this free will start? Genesis, Adam and Eve. So I just want to follow this real rabbit trail a little bit. Why did God give us free will? Why is it so important to understand that not denying God's sovereignty over everything, including his relationship with us, God still chooses us. That's scriptural, but we also choose him. He started, he demonstrated this free choice when it came to eternal destiny right from the start of creation with Adam and Eve. So why is it important? Well, he could have just put them in a perfect world with no opportunity to sin, with no tree of the knowledge of good and evil, no forbidden fruit to eat. We would have still been living in the Garden of Eden. (laughs) One big happy family. No sin. Why didn't God do that? Well, the answer is love. (laughs) The answer is love. Love is based on free choice. So imagine this hypothetical scenario where God gave Adam and Eve no other choices, where there was no tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where they could only obey God. God would have, in essence, created robots. Human robots created without the ability or opportunity to disobey. So, how would God know whether or not they loved him? He wouldn't. And how would Adam and Eve know if they loved God? They wouldn't. So, love is based on trust. And we make our decisions based on who we trust or love the most. So think about it this way. When we make robots, we program them to do what we want them to do. If the robot cleans our house, washes the car, and does the shopping, and does our laundry, for example, do we buy it a present and take it out to dinner in appreciation? You know, a lot of people got those robot vacuum cleaners, you know. Do you go home and rub it on the top and say, oh, well done, thank you so much for doing my floors today, you know. Of course not. It's programmed to do that. It has no choice. Yeah? On the other hand, if the husband spent his day off cleaning the house, washing the car, (laughs) doing the shopping, doing the laundry, then the wife is very much appreciative because she knows that her husband could have chosen to go fishing with his friends instead. See, there was a choice. By his choices, the husband has chosen to demonstrate that he loves his wife more than his fishing buddies. As a result, his wife knows that she is loved. In the same way, God can do anything, but he can't do two things. One, he can't lie. And two, he can't force us to love him. Now, if he did force us to love him, it would be like rape. When a man forces himself on a woman, it's called rape. But the same act of physical intimacy within a healthy marriage is beautiful. So in the same way, Jesus longs for friendship and intimacy with us, but he will never force himself on us. 
Jesus longs for friendship and intimacy with us, but he will never force himself on us. So another question we can ask about verse 20 is, does this verse apply to believers or unbelievers or both? Well, I think it's both. We both have this invitation for fellowship. He wants us to come and have this deep and meaningful relationship. Now, unbelievers have never experienced fellowship with God. They are enemies of God. But unfortunately, there's many believers who rarely experience true fellowship with God, of abiding with God, of experiencing the fruit of the Spirit flowing through them, His love flowing through them, because they are not walking with Him. So I just want to put this up. I went through this a while ago. But it just helps us to remember the basics. So how do we enjoy fellowship with God? Well, it starts with reading the Bible. The more I read the Bible, the more I learn about God. The more I know about God, the more I will love God. The more I love God, the more I will obey Him. The more I obey God, the more I will abide in Him. That means to walk with Him, to agree with Him. The more I abide in Christ, the more fruit I will bear, which is love, the fruit of the Spirit. The more fruit I bear, the more glory I bring to God. So, Let's go to verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So to him who overcomes. We don't have to live in defeat. This is a promise to him who overcomes. He wouldn't give this promise if it was impossible to achieve, right? There's nothing stopping us from experiencing this fellowship with Jesus. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I explained what it meant to be an overcomer. How do we overcome? But I want to repeat this because it won't take long and I think it's really important. 1 John 5, 3-5, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So, once you are a Christian, you have already overcome the world. We walk in that by our faith. We experience that the reality of that by our faith. So this passage shows us that we don't overcome our weaknesses by working harder or putting more effort into things, but simply by trusting God and depending on Him. So I want you to notice that the victory is past tense. It says, has overcome. Okay, has overcome. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it means you have already overcome the world. How? Well, Jesus overcame sin and death for us. He broke the power of sin and death when he died on the cross. So Jesus has overcome the world. And because I am in Christ, then I also have overcome the world. His victory has become my victory. And all we need to do is walk in the victory we have already received to work it out practically. How? As we just read, uh, talked about, read your Bible and Obey it, pray, fellowship, evangelize. Overall, simply make your relationship with God the most important part of your life 
and enter into his rest by ceasing from your own works. It's the fulfillment or true meaning of the Sabbath feast given to the nation of Israel. So just to work this out, because this really fits with the church of Laodicea. Hebrews 4, 9-11 So then, there is still awaiting a full and complete Sabbath rest reserved for the true people of God. For he who has once entered God's rest has also ceased from the weariness and pain of human labours, just as God rested from those labours of his own. That's the creation account. Six days of creation. Let us therefore be zealous and exert ourselves and strive diligently to enter that rest of God, to know and experience it for ourselves, that no one may fall or perish by the same kind of unbelief and disobedience into which those in the wilderness fell. So the Israelites going to the wilderness, they never actually learned to trust God. That first generation, they died in the wilderness because they never learnt to put their faith in God. Never rested from doing things on their own strength. So just like God stopped working on the seventh day, so God is calling us to stop working using our own energy and efforts. So entering God's rest and ceasing from our own works or self-effort is like driving the car down the road instead of pushing it. I've used that example before, but you know, if we do things, try and live the Christian life on our own, you know, it's like going out to the car, you know, opening the door, putting your gear in the car, and then wind down your window and putting your hand through the window and steering all so you can steer the car and pushing it. You know, and people look at you going, why are you pushing your car? Well, that's what it's like when we're trying to do things on our own strength. The difference is like night and day. Living the Christian life is a chore and a burden at best if we are doing it on our own, but easy and a blessing if we are walking by faith and trusting in His strength. So as Paul says in Colossians 2.7.8, observing the Sabbath is the shadow, while living by faith is the fulfillment. It's faith or it's works, like we learned in Galatians. Now I spent years in defeat because I was trying to live the Christian life in my own strength. Now, understanding the true nature of God's rest and finally accepting that by myself I am incapable of living the Christian life, it revolutionized my life. It was a very difficult pill to swallow. My pride, my self-esteem was badly damaged. I can't do it. I had to admit I can't do it. Because many years I just kept on, no, I can do it. I can do it. The Bible says you can't, but I can. (laughs) No, I couldn't. So I just went, okay, I can't do it anymore. I'll trust you. So I went from constant defeat to victory. I became an overcomer, and I remain an overcomer as long as I remember my weakness and put my faith in God's strength and power, something the church of Laodicea desperately needs to learn to do. Remember what it said in verse 17? I have need of nothing. Now it says, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. This is a pretty awesome promise. To sit with Jesus on his throne. God leaves the best promise to last, to the very worst church. Isn't that grace? That's amazing grace, eh? The worst church gets the greatest promise. 
So there's hope for all of us. The worst of us can still repent. We can finally conquer. We can attain even to the highest state of glory, to sit with Jesus' throne along with him. And that is a huge honour. Verse 22, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <laughs> he who has an ear, let him hear. Now, as I was going through the church of Philadelphia, I was going, yep, that's us. That's me. And few want to identify themselves with the church of Laodicea. But you know what? You know, even though I was quite smug as I was studying, you know, the previous church, Philadelphia, as comparing this church and myself to other churches and whatever who've really gone off the rails. But then, as I was going through this church, I started looking inside and I realized, you know what? <laughs> I need to have a bit of self evaluation here. We need to be honest with ourselves. I've been challenged myself as to not being as hot or zealous for the things I've got as I could be. I've noticed areas in my life where I'm really not doing it with the right motivation. So could there be room for improvement in your own lives? Are you completely or are we completely surrendered to God and serving Him with our whole heart? Are we true overcomers or are we lukewarm? So. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. We must hear what the Holy Spirit says here because he's speaking to not just the church of Laodicea, but all the churches. That's all of us. So may God deliver us from the self-reliant, compromising lukewarmness that marked the church of the Laodiceans. And it's catchy, this lukewarmness, this self-reliance. It's catchy. And we, we look at other people doing it and we tend to do it ourselves. And it's easy to do in this culture where we have everything we want. Now, before we finish, I would like to draw your attention to yet another evidence that the church will not be on the earth during the tribulation. So, you know, I believe that we're going to go up, be caught up when Jesus comes back uh, to meet us in the skies uh, before the tribulation period. Now, I'm going to compare two verses. The first one, it's on the screen now, it's repeated seven times. It's at the end of each of the letters to the seven churches. And it's obviously a part of the church age. The second verse is Revelation 13.22, and it's to those people who are actually in the tribulation. So the verse that is repeated seven times says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's in the church age. In the tribulation, it only says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. So what's missing? what the Spirit says to the churches. Ah, that's an indication that the church isn't there, that the church has been caught up at the start of the tribulation period. The church is in heaven. We're gone. Like we talked about two weeks ago, this should be the focused hope of everyone who has come to personal faith in Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. There's a few little side notes I'm going to go through which will help us to basically appreciate Revelation a bit more. Firstly, this is a glorious time to be alive. Do you know why? Well, Jesus said in Luke 10, 23 and 24 
to his disciples who are witnessing the first coming of Christ. Then when they were alone, he turned to the disciples and said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you have seen. I tell you, many prophets and kings longed to see what you see, but they didn't. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. So as I said, that applies to the first coming of Jesus when many prophecies were fulfilled. But guess what? We're living in an age where many prophecies are being fulfilled and many more are about to be fulfilled concerning the second coming of Christ. We're seeing it happen before our very eyes, so we are blessed to live in this age. Secondly, how do you avoid going into the seven-year tribulation period? Because if you're not saved, you will not go up in the rapture and you will enter the tribulation. Well, how do you avoid going to the seven-year tribulation? Is just repent and receive forgiveness of sins. Jesus can forgive every sin except the sin of not receiving his free gift of eternal life. And John 16 verses 8 and 9 makes this clear. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin. This is the Holy Spirit. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. So the gift of eternal life must be received. The third side note is a historical one. It attempts to answer the question of how did the church get into the terrible condition that it is today? Well, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, there began to be a vast change taking place in the seminaries or Bible colleges of the major denominations. It started in Germany. It was called the Higher Critical School. And what they did is begin to question the verbal inspiration of the Bible. So basically, did God really say that? Now, Satan isn't dumb. He starts with the leaders because they influence everybody else. So what chance or hope does the church have of staying close to Jesus, staying in the truth, if the seminary is corrupted, producing corrupt pastors, pastors who then teach false or liberal doctrine? So inevitably, this liberalism or false teaching has crept into the major denominations, and as a result, the purity and strength of the church has plummeted. We are weak. So today, it doesn't matter what church you go to, you need to check out what they teach, especially that they believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Because when you lose that, you've lost everything. If not every word is inspired, and the order of the words, every nuance of it, then guess what? You get to choose which bits are and which bits aren't. And that's what people do. They even add outside sources to the Bible. Now, the fourth side note, this is about the Church of Laodicea, and it follows from the third, this walking away from the authority of the Bible. It concerns a prosperity gospel. I mentioned this a bit last week. It's one of the most dangerous perversions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a version of Christianity claiming that God promises Christians a healthy and financially prosperous life if only they are sufficiently faithful. If you're faithful enough, then you will be rich and you will be healthy. And there's different versions of that. 
So in summary, the prosperity gospel is a false gospel that substitutes a vision of present earthly happiness for a vision of the final restoration of heaven and earth that the Bible anticipates. In other words, we want it now. We're not willing to wait for the blessings and the glory and the honor. We want it now. We want what God promises for later, now. It's one of the defining doctrines of the last days later see in church. No church or person is as self-sufficient and self-reliant as one caught up in the prosperity gospel. They're not seeking Jesus or his kingdom, they're seeking their own little kingdom. Now, I'm going to finish by drawing application from Revelation 3.20, which is Christ calling us to fellowship with him. Now, I'm going to show this picture, and you might have seen it before. It's a picture by Holman Hunt. The story goes, I don't know if it's true or not, a critic said, you've made a mistake, Mr. Hunt. There's no handle on the door. That was intentional, the artist is said to have replied. The door only opens from the inside. So if the story is true, and Holman Hunt was right, it's up to you and me to let the Lord into our lives. He won't kick the door down. He won't force his way into our hearts. Now, most people use this verse as a call for salvation at an altar call or something like that. But did you realize that it was actually written to a self-satisfied congregation? The later seeing congregation? It was written to a church. So, again, is Jesus talking to people, meeting in his name, who are supposed to be Christians? Yes, he's outside of the church. He wants to come in. So, the question now becomes, how does a Christian get to the point where the Lord is on the outside, whether it be a church or individual? How do we get to the place where we think we're doing fine, but we're actually spiritually bankrupt? If it happened to the church of Laodicea, can it happen to us? Absolutely. So, Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture, so we're going to go to the Song of Solomon, and we're going to get some inspiration from here, and some answers from here. It's a really beautiful story. It's a story of a king, King Solomon. He's the bridegroom, and he's in love with his new bride. Now, after experiencing intimacy with her the next morning, he's outside her door. And this is what she, the bride, says. Okay, so. My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts out her green figs, and the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. So this is a picture of Christ and the church, of Christ seeking relationship with us. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. So, yes, it is referring primarily to husband and wife, but it also has an application to Christ and the church. Jesus is longing to have fellowship with us. He says, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. 
And I'm just reading this to you because it really helps us to understand that God actually enjoys spending time with us. God actually enjoys spending time with us. The next verse says, Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. So the foxes would eat the grapes. So, Come away with me, says the bridegroom. The rain has stopped. The birds are singing. I want to hear your voice. I long to see your face. And remember to watch out for the little foxes, those temptations, those things that will hinder our love if they are not dealt with. Now, after hearing his invitation and warning, the bride responds in verse 16 and 17, My beloved is mine and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag up on the mountains of Bethur. So the bridegroom is outside the door saying, Honey, come on, it's a glorious morning. I want to take you to new heights to hear wonderful new songs and remember to be on guard against little foxes. And what does the bride say? It's too early. You go and play on the hills and I'll catch up with you later. See what she says? She says, Until the day breaks and their shadows flee away, because it's night time, until it's morning, you turn and you run around the mountains, that's fine, but I'm not ready yet. I'll catch up with you later. So what happens next? The next two verses in the next chapter. By night on my bed I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city. In the streets and in the squares, I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. So what's happening here is something that can happen to us corporately or individually. It's the danger of what someone has called doctrinal drowsiness. (laughs) It's like we say, Lord, I know you're calling me to come away this morning and seek you. But I'm yours and you're mine. I'm robed in your righteousness. <sighs> and my name is written in your book. <laughs> so I'll meet with you a little later. <laughs> That's basically the response the bride gives to the bridegroom. As the day progresses, however, and the trials arise, we cry, Lord, Lord, where are you? Like this bride, how often we say, I don't feel the Lord anymore. My day is empty. My night is dark. Where is he? Well, the answer is, when he called us, we chose to say, I don't need to go to Bible study. I didn't need devotions this morning. I don't need to expend the energy because I'm his and he's mine. I'm already safe and secure in Jesus. So as the story unfolds, we see that the bride seeks her bridegroom. And yes, she does find him. But guess what? It takes energy. She has to go out and seek. Here's a verse in Jeremiah 29.13. And you will seek me and find me. That's a promise. You will. When you search me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29.13. In the New Living Translation, it says, If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. So there's no room for laziness in our relationship with the Lord. Now we've talked about entering God's rest and ceasing from our own works. We have responsibility 
and our responsibility is to seek Jesus. That's it. We don't have to worry about doing all the other things. We can't work up boldness to share the gospel. We can't, you know, do anything that God wants us to do without his strength. But what our responsibility is, is to seek a relationship with him and he'll do everything else. So, come away, my beloved. There are some mountains I want to show you, some songs I want to share with you. So the Lord is constantly coming to us and saying, drop what you're doing and take five minutes to talk to me, or take 10 minutes and worship me, or take 15 minutes to pour out your heart to me. Here's an analogy, right? The Spirit is like the wind. Jesus said this in John chapter 3, verse 8. No man knows from where it comes or where it goes. Now, hand gliding. Who's been hand gliding? You have? Yeah? couple? All right. Hand gliders understand this concept of the wind. When they get a report that the thermals are perfect, that's the upward warm air rising, they don't say, I can't go today, but maybe tomorrow I'll go if I can fit it in. Because what happens? The winds change. The thermals aren't there anymore. You go tomorrow, they're gone. So avid hand gliders move when the wind is blowing. They go to where the wind is blowing, where the thermals are good. And the same is true in the spiritual life. When I sense the thermal of the Spirit, the moving of the Spirit, I must respond immediately. Some people say, oh, hang on a second, that's a bit irresponsible. What about your family obligations and work responsibilities? Well, actually, I think the Holy Spirit knows about them. You can't use that as an excuse to be late for work. Well, the Spirit was moving and I had to respond. No. If you need to be at work by 8 o'clock, you'd be at work by 8 o'clock. But, what about when we sit down to watch movies or TV for an hour or two, or to play games, or to read a book? For those are the times that the Lord calls us to come away. This is my personal experience, and I don't regret giving up the TV and the movies and reading books. I get to have so much more time reading the Bible, and I'm so much more satisfied than I was before. There's no way I want to go back to being a TV and book junkie. I just don't want to go back. Now, I'm really, really clever. It only took me 20 years to figure it out. <laughs> and God is still working on me. You know, I, I do regret the wasted time. You remember C.T. Studd's poem, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And right now, there's other things that the Lord is asking me to moderate or get rid of. I still got this thing about reading international news regarding biblical prophecy, and I might be tired. I'll still stay up and look at that. And, you know, it's just, I don't need to. And playing maths games and things like that. So, you know, I've still got things that I'm still working on. I still don't use my time perfectly. Now, going on in Song of Solomon, I won't read it to you, but in chapter 5, verses 10 to 16, it tells us that. The bride went looking for her bridegroom, and the way she did it was giving a detailed description of him to her friends. In other words, she realized where to find him was not to stay in her room, but to get out there and say, let me tell you about this one whom I love. And so often God will give us a witnessing opportunity, an opportunity to serve, whatever it might be, and we can engage and we can talk about him, share him, and we will 
again, start to experience intimacy with him. So it's, it's just walking with him. So the key to intimacy in your Christian walk, the source of enough spiritual energy to skip on the mountains of fellowship, like it says in Song of Solomon, and share with your neighbors is to say yes when the bridegroom knocks at your door. So when you hear Jesus knocking, answer the door. The thermals are perfect, so get out of bed, grab your hand glider, and start flying. So, in practice, this simply means that we listen to and obey the still, small voice of the Spirit, and consequently experience the exhilaration and joy of walking with Jesus, moment by moment, and day by day. So, a couple of reminders of what we've studied today. Remember that Jesus leaves the abiding and the obedience as our choice. He will never force us to draw near to him. And a famous quote by A.W. Tozer that I have always remembered is, Every man is as close to God as he wants to be. Every man is as close to God as he wants to be. And that really challenged me, and it still challenges me. Because the only thing stopping me from being close to God is me. I can't blame anyone else, it's just me. We have to take personal responsibility for our own relationships with God. Finally, remember that we are already overcomers. We can't do things on our own strength, but rather by trusting in the victory that Christ has already won for us. And just to finish with that verse, 1 John 5.4, For every child of God defeats or overcomes this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. So if we are frustrated with our poor spiritual condition, it is because we are trying to live by our own strength, our own willpower, the latest in church. Okay? Our prideful and deceptive heart has deceived us. We need to surrender and realize that Jesus has everything we need and that it's only through Christ that I can do all things. Remember what Jesus said to Paul? My strength is made perfect in your weakness. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So Father, thank you that you have given us this letter to the Laodiceans. And as much as it hurts, it's also very comforting and reminds us of the fact that we can be easily deceived to thinking that we can do things on our own strength. And the evidence of that is when we struggle, we really struggle to do the basics. Lord, help us to humble ourselves and come to that place of not working, but resting, of entering your rest, ceasing from our works like you did at creation, trusting in you to live your life through us. Help us to encourage each other, help us to exhort each other as the time draws near, and help us as a church to grow, to be equipped and to grow more mature as we seek you together. In Jesus' name, amen.